Welcome to Digital Mindfulness. This is episode 28. This episode of Digital Mindfulness is brought to you by Semantica Research, a leading media intelligence company helping communications, social media and marketing professionals make better, more informed business decisions from digital data. I'm Lawrence Mpofo, and my guest today is Clive Thompson. He's the author of the book, Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Shaping Our Minds for the Better. Clive is a journalist for Wired and the New York Times, and he writes about the social and cultural impacts of digital technologies. In this fascinating interview, Clive and I talk about the most important digital inflection points, the impact that they have on society, and how digital technology ultimately helps us become smarter and better people. I hope you enjoy this interview coming up. Clive Thompson, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to Digital Mindfulness. I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking to you, not just about your book, but your perspective on technology and society and how the two are mixing together, mixing together to influence one another. So welcome, for, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. So Clive, can you tell us all a little bit about yourself and why the issue of digital technology affecting human thinking inspires you so much? Well, for me, it goes way back to kind of when I was a kid. I mean, I'm so I'm 47, which means I'm exactly of the age where when I was a kid, uh, these personal computers came along that you could plug into your TV. And so it was the beginning of the idea that you could mess around with computers on a daily basis yourself. And I could, and, and my parents didn't really want to buy me um, one of these ones because they thought I would sit around playing games all day long and not get my homework done. But I, I had access to them at school. And one summer, a friend of my father's lent me his Commodore 64. I spent the whole summer programming games and music and databases and uh, little chatbots. And I, I, could, I could immediately see how this was going to m- massively amplify um, uh, what, uh, what, a, what a person was capable of, right? Uh, I mean, it was Steve Jobs actually had a very clever way of putting it. He said, um, you know, the, uh, um, uh, the condor is the most efficient creature in terms of how it uses energy. And, and a human is actually one of the least. Um, but if you put a human on a bicycle, they become more efficient in movement than the condor. The bicycle completely renders them unbelievably efficient. And so he said the computer, personal computer was going to be a bicycle for the mind. It was going to allow uh, us to do all sorts of things intellectually that, uh, uh, that, that are really unachievable, unaided. So, you know, I, I sort of, I guess I kind of got that when I was a kid. And then when I became an adult, I, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. I studied, uh, I, well, I studied political science in English, but I, I, um, I, I was a student journalist at, at the University of Toronto. And I, and I first thought I'd write about politics. But then in the 90s, when I graduated, this, this thing, the internet was exploding. And I thought, well, you know, this is, this is really interesting. I could see how this is going to be the, this is really going to bring, you know, computation and new communication tools to the masses. And I bet some really interesting things are going to happen. So I said, I want to write about this. And 20 years later, that's, that's what I've been doing. Gosh, so you've really seen then in that time, right from the Commodore 64, because you said you appreciated at that time that this is actually going to have a big effect um, on humanity in general. So you've seen these kind of huge inflection points at which I guess tech has made them um, an impact on us. And yep. what are the most momentous yep. moments that you've seen sure. from that? 
Yeah. Okay. If if you wanted to, if you wanted to break down, you know, the sort of I, I guess during during the kind of twenty years that I've been writing about this, there's been a couple of interesting inflection points, and I think, um, I you know, one of the first ones was simply you know in the late 90s, the beginning of mass access to the internet. And, and, and people sort of reacted in this really interesting way. Like they had this idea that, uh, you know, it, access to information was going to be amazing. You could get all these, you know, uh, news from different websites and whatnot. And, and, and that was true, right? Like that was true, although a lot of the stuff didn't click into place until later because there wasn't really that much online. Um, and then what began to happen, uh, I guess – you know, in the late 90s, you got things like instant messaging where people could sort of talk to each other, you know, in the, in the, in the, and they could talk to each other in this curious new way. You could have a conversation that wasn't like sitting face to face because it was in text, um, but it wasn't like email either because it was more rapid fire. It was like it, was, it had the pacing of a conversation uh, of being next to someone and sort of saying something while you're both maybe working or, or you know, or talking or watching TV. Um, but it, but it, but you could you could be kind of a wittier version of yourself because it was in text. And this was one of the first moments when people began to realize, oh, this will this, you know tweaks in an interest it gives me an interesting new way to communicate with other people and and it, it it sort of presaged what happened with social media which is that um well the internet thinker clay shirky puts this really nicely he says we have traditionally overestimated the value of access to information uh and we have underestimated the value of access to each other and one of the things the internet has really done is it, it has massively amplified our access to each other and we're, we're social creatures. We, ca- we sort of like talking to one another. We like arguing with one another. We like knowing what other people are doing or thinking. And so we've been given these very interesting new ways to pay attention to what each other are thinking, to expose our thoughts to each other. So you, you kept. So I think one of the first big inflection points is just people getting online. Then around the late 90s, it's like instant messaging begins to change our idea of what it means to talk to one another. Um, and, then, and, that, and that really cracks open with social media kind of around the Facebook and Twitter period. Um, but you also – another big inflection point I think was actually Wikipedia, which is when um, the first – it was the first time when you know, there was kind of a, a cool framework out there for people to collaborate on building a, a, something much bigger than any individual and done in this very crazy anarchic way. Like, you know, like intellectuals were completely flustered, puzzled, and even enraged by uh, Wikipedia because it violated all of their previous ideas about how something of intellectual value comes comes into being, right? Like, you know, the the old idea was, well, you had to get people like me, you know, who are, you know, sort of, you know, paid to learn about a field and become an expert in it and paid to explain it to other people. And that's, and their idea was that's how the useful knowledge gets created. Um, The idea that the average person would just show up and write a sentence in in, in, in an encyclopedia and that it would be not just an absolute, you know, morass of nonsense, uh, was absolutely baffling, and and that that gave rise to this wonderful phrase, which is, um, you know, <laughs> Wikipedia may work in practice, but it'll never work in theory. I remember. Uh, <laughs> and what what it's a joke, but what it really shows is that we lacked good theories. We lacked a good way to conceptualize what was going to happen when people could collaborate on something that jointly fascinated them, you know? We, we, we simply, as a species, were not accustomed to seeing that happen. We, we kind of were at, at, at a small level. You know, you see a, you know, a church group collaborate on something. You, you see a team do something. It's, but they, these are people face-to-face in a room. We, we, we didn't really, 
we didn't really have any paradigm for what, what the interactions would be like when a bunch of people of reasonable good faith uh, got together to do something. And, and so, I, in a way, Wikipedia sort of showed what you now see over and over again all over the place in smaller ways, people jointly problem-solving and collecting together around, you know, and that's often very, very strange niche little things, like I'm a guitar player, right? So, so I, I spend a lot of time on these, you know, guitar pedal forums, you know, and there's you know, maybe a thousand people that show up, you know, you know, every week to talk about guitar pedals, and someone will just one day will go, wow, I, I, I got this old broken famous pedal from the 1960s that all these, you know, rockers used back then. It doesn't work, you know, but I'd like to fix it, but I don't have the schematics. And, you know, within like two hours, five other people that own that pedal have opened it up and taken photos and put them online. And, that, and now people who actually understand electronics are mapping it out. And then within three hours, you know, they've, they've, they've jointly specced out a perfect circuit map for this yeah. and how to fix it, you know? And so, and now that's one little simple example, but that happens all the time. You go into any of these, and it happens in these little, these corners of the internet that are, that are often unnoticed because unless you think to go there, you don't know they exist. You know, you don't know that there's, you know, the, the snowboarding forum where they talk about climate change and how it's affecting slopes around the world. You don't know that there's, you know, even unless you're, unless you're a knitter, you don't know there's Ravelry, you know, website devoted yeah. to knitting patterns. So, so the next inflection points, you get social connections and you get these sort of collaborative intellectual things. And those are a couple of the really, really, really big things um, that happen. And then, and then the third one, I, the last one I'll say is just mobile. I mean, the idea that suddenly the computation was with us all the time has been, a, has been another really interesting tipping point. So th those are a couple of the ones I've observed. Okay, there's so much there. And I really wanted to dive in on, on a few points that you've said there. But I think this is a really good point at which we can talk about your book, um, sure. Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Changing Our Minds for the Better. Um, can you tell us all a little bit about what the thinking was behind this book? Because um, I read it, I was absolutely fascinated. But yeah, what's the main thinking? What's the main drive behind yeah, this wh book? Why did I write the book? Right. Yeah. So you know, for me, uh, you know, as I said, I'd written, I'd spent 20 years looking at how people use technology and how it changes the way they think, by which I mean the way they learn something, the way they recall it and muse on it, the way they talk about it with other people, right? Or, or maybe the way they take action on it. Um, and over the years, I actually went from being quite a pessimist to quite an optimist. Like 20 years ago, I thought, wow, I was a typical snotty sort of, you know, know-it-all. Oh, yeah. know there's no one more boorish than a 24-year-old man with a university degree, right? I thought, you know, I'm smarter than everyone else. Everyone is such an idiot. Wow, it would be terrible if all these dumb people were allowed online because, you know, society will just degrade. Um, but, you know, I'm a journalist, and so I am, I am wedded to reality, which is to say, you know, I would, I would have, I'd sit at my desk, I'd stroke my chin, I'd think, well, you know, Clearly, people are stupid. So, what, if messaging is being happened, it must be stupid people talking about stupid things, right? Because they're also dumb. So, but you know, I, I'm a journalist, so I have to go out and document this. So, I go out and I start I to write a piece of instant messaging. I, I interview dozens of people, and I, and I discover that I'm completely wrong, and that all sorts of fascinating conversations, uh, witty and interesting and weird and erudite and 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 playful, are happening that I could never have imagined in ways I could never have imagined. And over and over again, this would happen. I because I'm a reporter, I would. Every time a technology came along, I'm like, I don't care what people predict is going to happen. I want to know what's actually happening. And I would go out and I would just talk to lots of people. And I would talk to scientists that observe this. And so 
over and over again, this happened with with social messaging, with so, social media, with with uh, you know phone cameras, with um, you know uh, video games, with everything. I would discover that people were doing things much more inventive and interesting and unpredictable than I could have thought of, fretting at my desk and stroking my chin, and. But what started happening is, you know, I noticed all these books coming out that were all like, oh, my God, we're becoming so stupid and, you know, society's going going down the tubes. And it didn't square with reality. And a lot of these books, I will say, you know, they're not really reported books. It really is someone sitting at their desk and fretting uh, and, and maybe reading some scientific papers, but not actually going out and doing the legwork and, and looking at people and hanging out with them while they do their everyday lives. And when you're a journalist and when you see this stuff, like, you know, it, it's hard to square with these, with these very gloomy predictions. You know, reality just didn't seem to be doing what everyone claimed it was doing. Um, I mean, one of my favorite examples is, you know, you, we read endless stories about how people are, you know, some, some pundit will say, well, I, I, you know, everyone is always looking at their phones and not talking to each other in cafes, right? Like there's, they go to a cafe with a friend, but they look at their phone the whole time. And I'm like, huh, is that really true? Uh, so, you know, I started taking out my notebook and I had random times, you know, cause it, because you don't want to bias this by your own, your own, your own peak. I would, you know, like for example, when, when I would, I would pick a moment like when, when the server brought me my, brought me my, my check or my bill to look up and I would look at everyone and I would see, count how many people were talking to each other, how many people were looking at their devices. And, or, or I would do it when I first walked into the cafe, right? And inevitably, zero or nearly zero people we're looking at their devices, right? This, this, is, this is a massively, and, and, and science and scientific studies have basically shown this. Like someone did a, like captured, you know, dozens of hours of people in, in a public park, wanted to know how often they were looking at their phone. It was between three and 10% of the people. So, you know, we're talking about something that is, you know, uh, uh, you know or, or let me put this better. I like being, uh, I like my work being anchored in reality because I'm a reporter. And so I wrote the book partly to sort of, try and inject what I thought was some notes of reported reality into a debate that was mostly people getting hysterical sitting at their desks. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, and I was also interested in kind of the gray area. I mean, like, I say that my book is optimistic, and I think it is, but, you know, one of the things you find when you talk to people about technology is that they're often really enthusiastic about parts of it and horrified by their parts of it, and they're often completely wedded together, right? Like the very thing that they love about it is sometimes the very thing that tortures them about it. And this is incredibly interesting, right? You know, because this is where we have to, I think this is the point of your podcast. This is where we have to learn the way these tools work so we can figure out how to, how to harvest what's good about them and diminish the, the, the bad parts. And you can really only get there if you sort of get really in the weeds of what people's lived experiences like. So that's kind of what my book was, was trying to do. I love that. And why then do you think, Clive, that people do get hysterical about text? Why do you think that the discussion always ends up on the extremes? Actually, right. you know, that we either love it and we yes. can't wait for the future that mm -hmm. it's going to bring us or, oh, my yeah. God, this is rotting our brains and changing the way that we think. Why do you think the discussion is always so hyperbolic? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And I've been exploring this through a series of historical essays for Smithsonian Magazine. I go back and I take a look at old technologies and I look at how they were received. And, and hyped or fretted about in the past. So the telephone, the telegraph, um, oh, you, the did it, you did that with books as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did it with books, yeah. And so, uh, and, and there's a bit of it in my book, and I've been doing, I've been pursuing it in these series of essays, which I may turn into a separate book. Um, and in each case, you're exactly right. It's it, it very similar sort of utopian and dystopian views. Um, I think some of it is because, um, 
you know, we're narrative creatures and we like dramatic narrative and a utopian sort of view where everything is going to be amazing. You know, like almost every time a new technology has come along, be it the book or the telegraph or the telephone, inevitably people say this, this means the end of war. You know, because why would we fight if we could talk to each other over distance, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they're always wrong, right? They're, <laughs> they're always completely wrong. Um, uh, and, and on the other hand, people always say, and I mean like always, this new technology means we will become so socially lazy we will never um, have conversations again. And also always wrong. Like every single time they're wrong, right? Um, so, so I think some of it, it, it's narratively exciting to have a really dramatic story, be that positive or negative. It's very narratively exhausting to get in the weeds of the gray area where reality really resides. So I think some of it is that. The other part of it is that there is this woman, um, a terrific anthropologist. She works for uh, Intel named uh, Genevieve Bell. And she once formulated a, a statement that I think is really delightful and explains it. She said, look, you know, technologies sometimes change our relationship to space. Uh, we can move around more quickly. Sometimes they, they change our relationship to time. You know, we can do things at different times. Or, or, uh, and sometimes they change our relationship to each other, the way we relate to each other. And when a technology does all three, you usually see a moral panic. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so for that's sort of, it's sort of why, like, the fax machine, you know, it changed our relationship to space and time. But it didn't really change our relationship to each other because the fax was not used for social communications between people. It was mostly a, a tool of work, right? So you didn't see people freaking out about it. Whereas the mobile phone changes our relationship to space, time, and to each other. And so we flip out. And it's actually kind of a funny little rule. You can, you can begin to see why different, you know, technologies, you know, if, if they fit all those three conditions, we're going to lose our crap about it. So that, that, that's, that's, some, that's some of my sense about this. So then, I guess, could you level that same explanation to something like, say, language? Because there's been loads and loads of discussions about how, for example, text speak and um, even using emojis and emoticons, how that's kind of fraying or destroying yeah. the way people speak or language or kind of the way we yeah. convey emotions, etc. Sure. Could, could you lay that? Yeah, well, well, I mean, one of the other reasons why people freak out is that um, by the time they get to be middle-aged, they want the world to stay as it is. They've figured out how to work it, right? I mean, it took a long time. It took decades. My God, we're in our 30s, we're in our 40s. Finally, we feel some sense of mastery about this the world. I've got it now. And I'm then never. stuff starts changing. And for <laughs> please, God, not me. Like, you know, when we were young, we could roll with the changes. Now we're like middle age. We've got a job. We maybe have kids. Please, God, don't throw another thing I have to adjust to, right? So middle aged people are always the ones sort of losing their crap the most. Um, yeah. Interestingly, older people, the people in their 60s and 70s, they're, they're much more chill. I think because they've realized by then the world is always going to change. And so, they, like, like, I would discover in my research that no one is more. Uh, 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 you know, lava intensity worked up about technology than people in their 30s and 40s. Uh, the young aren't and the really old aren't. Uh, um, because the young, it's all, it's been, it's normal. They grew up with it. The old, yeah, they know the world's going to change. They've stopped losing their crap at it. The people in their 40s are insufferable. So, um, so, so I think, so, you know, with, so you see this with language that, you know, they've, they've, people, you know, people like the idea that the way they talk is the way everyone's always going to talk. And, and of course, this isn't, you know, any linguist, any historian of language can tell you that language is constantly, constantly morphing and changing. The way we write is constantly morphing and changing. Um, and so it's, it's, it's bonkers to think that we're ever going to, uh, it's ever going to stand still. Uh, it's completely healthy that it changes. We, you know, we need new words and new ways to communicate. It's, it's also fun. You know, we we're human. We're inventive, weird humans. We enjoy innovating crazy new ways to talk. 
Um, so, and, and we and we enjoy the sort of friction that comes from blending an old-fashioned way with a new-fashioned way. Like that, there's something delightful about that. So, uh, so I think the reason why people freak out is because they they believe there's some sort of moral corrosion if this changes. But it's really quite it's really quite a a, a, a narrow and even narcissistic perspective on things. Um, I understand why they do. I mean, I I. Uh, there was this period, <laughs> this period when people <laughs> in the early days of blogging, you know, I'm, I'm talking about blog, you know, I, I wrote a blog post. Suddenly everyone starts referring to blog to mean not the overall blog, but a single blog post. Like I wrote a blog yeah. and my strict grammarian slapped its ruler down. And I'm like, you people are illiterate <laughs> and incompetent and I will not have truck with your illiteracy, you know. <laughs> contaminating my world it's it's blog post and blog same thing it's like you know like people say do you have a facebook i'm like no you fools it's a facebook <laughs> account it's not a facebook but you know this is just me swimming against the tide right like the truth is you know the, the thing to ask with the change in language is not do you like it but can you understand what the person is saying are they clear and Inevitably, they are. When someone says, do you have a Facebook? I know exactly what they're saying. They're saying, do I have a Facebook account? I don't need them to conform to my prissy, purse-lipped way of insisting it's a Facebook account. You know, I can understand what they're saying. Um, so even I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not immune to this sort of concern about language. But I mean, really, I mean, but, but, but you know, when I, when I sort of, you know, get more interested in it, the thing, the thing that is always struck is how playful and inventive it all is. I mean, and often how strangely retro it is. Like people talk about emoji as if it were some rare new thing, but this is the way the Egyptians communicated for thousands of years, right? And it, and it, it like, it, like pictograph, like the idea that that we sh that there should be pictures mixed with language was the norm for thousands of years of human evolution, and was killed, interestingly killed, by the Gutenberg book, because you know if you look at manuscripts that were handwritten before them, they had lots of pictures. They loved pictures. The Bibles, the manuscripts, you know, the Book of Kells, unbelievably gorgeous works of art. Uh, it, was, it was understood that, the, in fact, the acme of human communications was to blend pictures with words for expressive. Uh, the re but, but it was very hard in the early days of those uh, of movable type to figure out how to put pictures inside books. It was easy to move text around. Very difficult to put pictures in. So pictures started dying. They were killed by the technology of the book. Now, the book gave us really, really great things, right? It gave us all sorts of gifts. Uh, you know, you could, you could print tons of books quickly, dissemination of literature. Uh, um, it's been credited with the, the, the sparks that led to individualism and democracy in the modern sense, all true and to some extent. But they killed off pictures, and it took a long time. But what's happened with the digital world is that because we don't need to individually carve out chunks of hot lead to type our tweets anymore uh, and because computers are just as happy to render pictures as text it's brought back the ability to do this thing that was a rich part of our expressive vocabulary for thousands of years and and killed out comparatively speaking quite recently in the history of humanity I mean you know you three or you know five thousand word five thousand years of the written la of, of written language and really only from you know 1500 onwards where we killed off pictures so technically speaking that was the aberrant period right uh, you could argue we're regressing to the norm or going back to the norm so and and even even things like emoji I wrote an essay about this it's it's very similar to uh, the delight that the Victorians uh, had in um, in rebuses right you know like, like uh, you know these very clever uh, funny little puzzles where you had to decode a combination of text and pictures this was regarded as an absolute delightful pastime Lewis Carroll used to write entire letters uh, to his nieces and nephews uh, in rebuses 
And, and now we do this just for the heck of it. It's how we invite each other out for pizza, right? You know, do you want to go to pizza, pizza, pizza? Um, so, so to me, like, this is an example of, you know, the sort of really inventive streak that gets uncorked when we're given new ways to express ourselves. Right. So um, a little while ago, Clive, you mentioned yep. these different books that were talking about the ways that the that digital technologies, the internet, mobile technologies are having a negative effect on not only our um, um, the physical structures of our brains or the, our physical bodies, but also our well-being. Um, but in your book, you say that this actually might not be the case or what people yeah. might be saying is yeah. a little bit overstated. Could you just explain yeah. that? Sure. I mean, there was this kind of vogue, uh, quite, quite, quite intense few years ago. It's fading, thankfully, to uh, constantly talk about the structure of the brain as if we had, uh, you know, this hard proof when you look at these brain scans that our brains are stupider uh, because of the internet and whatnot. And the problem was is that, um, you know, brain scans are a fantastic you know, pioneering technology for helping us to understand what's going on uh, in the brain. But they're, but they're, they're, they're as yet extremely crude at explaining um, complicated things like memory uh, or creativity or whatnot. Uh, or as, as a friend of mine um, uh, who's a neuroscientist at NYU, Gary Marcus says, you know, brain scans are like flying over, uh, uh, you know, in the United States, fly, flying over Ohio in a plane and looking out the window and trying to figure out what's happening with political parties. You know, uh, uh, I mean, technically speaking, you can, you know, see the land, but, you know, we, as yet, it's, you know, so, so the problem with all that stuff is that it was an attempt to basically, as I like to say, you know, Arguments over whether technology are making us stupider or dumber or more creative or whatnot are, are very much cultural, you know? They're cultural arguments. Uh, people were trying to use science to end a cultural argument, to say that we have definitive proof. It's scientific. You can't argue it that we are stupider. Um, that proof was not there. It may come. It, you know, it, this, this technology is getting better all the time. Uh, but we're talking decades or even hundreds of years uh, um, it's very revealing, though, that people want to end a cultural argument with hard evidence because, because the, 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 people are very, very invested in this idea that we're dumber or we're smarter or we're more polite or we're more horrible. Um, I mean, for me, I'm like, I'm happy to make cultural arguments because you, you can't really resolve them. They're arguments. I mean, I make my case in my book, but I don't pretend that it's proof. You know, uh, um, it, it, uh, it's an argument. You know, you can, I hope I'm convincing. Uh, you know, um, the, but, but I will say, though, that that sort of trend towards pointing to brain scans and saying, well, we definitively know what's going on, that's starting to fade away. I think there was this vogue amongst journalists and editors, and I myself did it. Go back and read my hysterical piece from 2004 about brain scans and marketing. I mean, I, I went full hog in that direction, you know. Uh, um, uh, I think journalists, thankfully, are backing away from making these really, really overly bold claims. You still see some scientists like Patricia Greenfield you know, making these, these completely unsubstantiated arguments about this. Um, but it, it's diminishing. And I, and I think that's as it should be, because um, that, that science is, is really really powerful and interesting, but um, any serious neuroscientist will tell you they're really just the beginning of this voyage. When you say that these are cultural arguments, what do you mean by that exactly? <laughs> sure. Um, what I mean is that, like, I mean, so a scientific argument is like, you know, <clears throat> when you drink a can of Coke, you know, how much glucose goes into your system. You can measure that, right? You know, and you can figure out whether or not that's good for you. Um, a cultural argument is, you know, when you, when I, you know, when you say someone is smarter or dumber, you're sort of arguing, you know, uh, you know, 
are they smarter according to my definition of that, right? So, you know, one of the, one, I think one of the, one of the reasons why you get a different view if you look at, say, Nicholas Carr's book, How the Internet's Making Us Stupid, The Shallows, and mine, is that we sort of defi- – we culturally define what it means to be intelligent in different ways. So for Nick, um, the acme of human intelligence is sustained reading of a book quietly by yourself, right? No disruptions and just in there looking at it for like five hours, absorbing it, getting it deeply inside your head. Um, and, and if you're not doing that, like you're doing something stupider than that. That is the top of the Matterhorn. Um, for me, I'm like, I absolutely agree that that is a crucial key of the modern intelligent mind. But the truth is a lot of thinking isn't like that at all. In fact, a lot of thinking is deeply social. Um, particularly when you're solving a problem, a difficult problem, or thinking through something at work, uh, you're often talking to lots and lots of people, you know, you know, or, you know, look at the activity in a surgical theater. It's like this highly collaborative stuff or people trying to build a new building, you know, like they're throwing a big, you know, thing up on the wall and arguing about it and marshalling data. So a lot of thinking, in fact, I would regard the majority of our thinking is not sitting and peering at a book. It's actually hashing out knowledge and learning together. And one of the, it, it's social thinking. Um, and one of the things the internet has been fantastic for is giving us new ways to socially think together. So that is one of the tent poles behind why I think we have had, uh, you know, uh, why, why this has been a se- overall, overall, you know, with all the, with all the deficits and problems, been an overall benefit for us, modern communication technologies. If you, but if you take the view that, like, that being smart is just reading a book, well, then sure, actually, anything that distracts you from that is bad, be that, you know, Facebook or Twitter or video games or, or anything, right? So this is why I say it's a cultural argument. You, you know, like, you can't really say which of us is right or wrong. It's which one you sort of value the most. I love that you, you spoke about the idea of collaboration and you said that actually, you know, digital encourages greater and importantly new forms of collaboration. Um, and I know this is one of the core um, ideas that you have within the book, but what are some of the other ideas um, sure. within your book that you can share with another, us? Another big one is related to that, which is that <clears throat> it encourages different forms of awareness, right? So, you know, the, uh, you know, there's there's this long habit we've had of building mental models of what's going on in other people's minds. You know, if I sit in a room with you and you're watching TV and I'm maybe reading or working, even if we don't talk for half an hour, we, we sort of know what's going on in each other's minds. You know, maybe we can see by read our body language, or maybe we'll just call out to each other and go like, "Aha, that was really stupid," or you know, "Oh my God," you know, you know, listen to this thing here. You know, if I'm reading the newspaper, so we do these. We 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 have these sort of ways of having you know, um, what they call ambient awareness of each other. Like we're not sitting staring at the other person, but we're, we're generally aware of what's going on in their, in their body language, in their mind. So the internet has completely exploded that because all, what all these short form, we tend to like these short form types of media, right? Like be they Facebook or Twitter or Instagram uh, or whatnot. The idea that we can sort of just broadcast these very small little utterances, maybe a link or a picture or a joke or whatnot. And, you know, maybe do 10 of them a day, you know, and, and we sort of follow other people and sometimes follow strangers. And, you know, a lot of people thought, well, this is stupid because each of these statements is so short that you can't say anything. And that's, that's sort of true, but really what's going on is the same thing as sitting in a room with someone. It's the accumulation of paying attention to someone over a long period of time. Like if you were to follow my Twitter stream for like an hour, it would just look like a bunch of kind of disjointed links to scientific articles. Uh, if you follow it for like a week, you'd start to go, oh, I see, this guy's kind of into this and this and this. If you follow it for a year, you would actually have a 
a surprisingly nuanced sense of what's going on in my mind. Mm. And so this new form of ambient awareness online has become a really big and interesting uh, way to connect to each other and to understand what's going on in, in, in each other's minds. That's a big one. Another one is um, uh, the ability to express ourselves in new media, new forms of media, like you know, pictures, video, uh, data, uh, animated GIFs, all these very weird new creatures of expressivity are extremely new. You know, we've had the moving image for 100 years, but for 90 of those years, up until about probably 10 years ago, it was prohibitively expensive for an individual to, broad, to, to, to capture and broadcast uh, a moving image and, and use it for their own active communication or expression. Like that just wasn't done. It was done by large corporations. It was done by the BBC. It was done by uh, movie theaters, you know, but it wasn't done by the average person. So we're seeing this crazy new language of what the moving image is for. Mm -hmm. And people are doing the weirdest things with it, right? I mean, like you go onto YouTube and people do unboxing videos. You know, here's what it looks like when I unbox my you know, you know, my, 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 my new, uh, uh, laptop or my phone or my, my drone or my kid's car, or, or they do, you know, they do time-lapse things of, of their plant growing out in the backyard. They do all these very weird, crazy experimental things. So, so what's starting to happen is that because these tools have gone from being really expensive to really cheap and mass, they are exploding in their expressive capability. Or, I mean, as I like to say, we've had the moving image for 100 years, but we still don't really know what it's for. We're still yeah. figuring that out. You know, and so to me, th these are a couple of other things that came up in my book. You know, these new forms of attention to each other and these new forms of self-expression. I really want to go back to this idea of um, ambient awareness and the wider idea of digital encouraging these new forms of attention because I thought that was amazing. And <clears throat> in the book, you kind of you spoke a little bit about mindfulness. A little yes. bit, and the whole idea of paying attention to your attention. And I just Absolutely. want to know whether you think, actually, is it possible to do this now? Is it possible to do this in the digital age when there's so much information? And you mentioned the whole idea of us kind of um, paying attention to these little snippets of information, whether it be they links or videos or yeah. images yeah. or whatever yeah. from other people, yeah. and you'd have a yeah. pretty good um, understanding of. of of a person or an account or an organization or whatever, but is it really possible to pay attention to that or pay attention to our attention of doing that? Because when there's right. so much yeah. content to yeah. do. Uh, um, the, 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 uh, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, uh, uh, in part because I've seen it done by lots of people and I do it myself. Um, but uh, it's not easy. It, it's a skill. You have to practice it. Um, and uh, you have to you have to get used to thinking about your urges because like you know like for a long time I was very much I think quite you know like I was a quite compulsive user of Twitter where like I, I sort of wanted to like see everything and I, I if someone said something I had to get get back to it right away you know right part of it is part of it in a, in a salutary way is social politeness if someone at replies you it feels rude not to get back to them right away right um, but you know. Over time, I decided when I started learning about mindfulness, and friends started telling me about this, I, and I read books about it. I thought, "Oh, okay, I see what's going on." So let me observe my own, uh, my own urges. My what my let me observe what my mind is trying to get me to do. Uh, and I was able to do that. Start more and more to do that thing where it's like, "Oh, I'm I'm I can feel myself wanting to stop doing the hard work of writing my column and go and dork around on 
Wikipedia or uh, or Twitter or whatnot. And and it, and you know and it and this was very hard to do at the first, but it got easier the more you did it. You know, like any habit when you practice it. Um, and some of it was also like like a more it wasn't just the habit; it was also a philosophical orientation. I I I, I began to realize that people talk about you know problems of the internet. One that I think that I mentioned in my book that I think is um is really significant is what they what's a, what a psychologist would call recency, which is the the very human, normal human, and quite adaptive, uh, evolutionarily adaptive um, belief that what's happening right now is the most important thing, and so we have to attend to it right away. You know. Uh, but, you know, the truth is it really – most of the time it isn't. You know, I mean like, uh, you know, it, it's often in- interesting to know what's going on because it's, it's almost like a the, – like, uh, the way I like to put it, the Twitter is like a happening. It's like, oh my god, were you there when that thing happened? You know, it, it, it's fun. It's fun to be part of that. It really is a happening. But, you know, you can't live your life that way. And most of the time it simply doesn't matter that much if you're really there, you know. So some of it is philosophical. It would be me realizing well, it doesn't really matter if I'm not there when, you know, that cool thing happened on Twitter. I can see it later on. I can enjoy it. Um, and so this – now, mind you, this is also easier to do when you are a middle-aged guy like me, right? Because when you are, you know, you're 18 or 17 or 21 or 22, you are – if, for completely correct, rational reasons, you are deeply concerned with establishing your social relations to other people, where, where you are in the pecking order. And so any tool that helps you figure that out, you really want to use a lot. Uh, so, you know, often you'll find people that are most sort of agonized over this are people in that age cohort. I mean, I think it gets easier as you get older, frankly. I, I don't think it's impossible when you're young, but it's harder when you're young. Easier for me to do, harder for Clive at 22 to do, right? Um, so for all these reasons, it's definitely challenging. But no, is it possible? Yes, it is. Uh, it, it absolutely is. Uh, I mean, and you can start teaching it like when kids are young. And, and, and the smartest teachers do. You know, they're like, you know, the, 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 what, what, we, what, you, what needs to be taught is that these tools are their environments. They're like walking into an arcade or a pub. Uh, um, and they're enormously delightful for that reason. You don't, you don't stay in them all the time. You go in and out, basically. Uh, like I said, not, not, not easy, but philosophically profound when you start to really, you know, think about it. Uh, and, and that's, uh, you know, like, it, I mean, one of the things I think is really interesting is, you know, at the heart of this is stuff that has, that has puzzled and troubled and excited philosophical thinkers throughout the ages, you know, like St. Augustine, you know, who said, I am in the world, but I am not of the world, you know, um, he, d- he did not want to be divorced, like he didn't want his Christianity to make him a sociopath, right, he didn't want, you know, his focus on the next world to render him, um, uh, you know, unfeeling and unthinking for the misery of people around him, um, you know, or, or you know, this, so you'll, you'll see the struggle, this sort of interesting philosophical struggle with people embracing things like Buddhism, Zen Buddhism. You know, to what extent, you know, if you believe the world, you know, the, the, the world around you is not necessarily, you know, the most important world, but you still have to react to it. So, you know, this is, these are exactly the types of things, you know, that, that come to bear when you try and take a more mindful relationship to social media because we're social creatures and, and enormous good has come of that, intellectual, cultural, spiritual. Um, but, you know, social media throws down the challenge that we've always had as to what is our appropriate uh, um, everyday on a minute-by-minute level relation to the world around us. And it's, it's not easy. It, it, it never is. 
And that's really, <coughs> excuse me, that's really interesting point of view because, it, you know, according to the spiritual traditions, um, and certainly if you look at, I guess, um, mindfulness training, they say that, you know, you, need, you do need to pay attention to the present moment, to every moment. Yes. Because they, they do have enormous gifts. But you're yes. right, that um, doesn't translate enormously well to the digital world, because if you are doing that, it would yes. kind of lead to some sort of neuroses, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because uh, mindfulness tells you to pay attention to what's happening to you, but in the digital world, everything is happening to you, right? You know, the entire world is there, simultaneously happening. This is what Marshall McLuhan said. He, he worried, and people always think that he was excited about the digital age. He was actually sort of terrified by it. Um, what he said, what he worried about, was that um, electronic media, as he called it, would enervate us. Uh, and I, it's funny, I, when I first read that, I misunderstood the word enervate. I thought that meant excite. No, no, enervate means to dull the senses, to shut down your senses because you can't deal with the stim- stimulus. So he worried that like um, persistent uh, uh, exposure to the world around you, and keep in mind, he's just thinking about the telephone and the three-channel TV, right? Uh, um, and yet he was, his predictions were spot on, would, you know, have the danger to enervate you because, you know, you had to screen it out, you know, to, to, to have a normal relationship to yourself. And, and so, yes, this is, this is a great challenge with mindfulness. Now, I mean, I, 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 like, as I said, I do think it is, it is actually um, possible to do. Uh, I mean, you know, even with some simple little things, like, for example, I, you know, I, I stopped checking email on the weekends. Uh, uh, and that was pretty, partly, partly non-intentional, actually. What happens is that all my social messaging, all my friends saying, hey, let's go to the, you know, go to the pub for a drink or, you know, do you want to come to the show? That was all happening on text messaging. So people, my friends were not emailing me anymore. So anything in email was work. I didn't want to work on the weekends. So I stopped checking email. But interestingly, that meant I also stopped seeing notes from Facebook or Twitter saying, hey, someone has just said something about you. And so without those alerts, I discovered it was easier to stay away from social media if I wanted to for a long period of time. And so I started actually kind of drifting away from social media on the weekends too. And that was pleasant. Like uh, I began to discover, oh, it's kind of fun to, you know, engage with the world in its, in its, in its, you know, immediate physical bandwidth without the additional layer of this stuff. And it became more of a treat when I came back to it on Monday. It's like, oh, here's this awesome crackling world of conversation again. You know, let's dive in and see what people have to say. Uh, so, you know, being away from it made it more fun to be in it as it were. Um, I love that because <clears throat> this directly relates to one of the quotes in your book, and, and I really like this quote, and you said that one of the great challenges of today's digital thinking tools is knowing when not to use them, when to rely on the powers of older and slower technologies like paper and books. Yes, that's right. And here's another little example of that. So with my kids, um, you know, so if, if they want to know a definition for a word, sometimes we'll just look it up, you know, online. Uh, but... Sometimes, if they're trying to understand um, not just that word, but the relationship to other words of that kind, then you want a paper dictionary because that's what, it, that's what a paper dictionary does. It shows you the word in the context of other words better than uh, digital dictionaries do. Now, not, I should point out, not entirely true. Like, this, is just, this, is not, this is not anything that's innate to digital 
dictionaries. It just means digital dictionaries have been designed crappily because paper dictionaries have, you know, 600 years of tradition. They've worked this out. Look at a dictionary from 500 years ago. It was terrible. It was just as bad as the online ones are now. So the digital ones will get better. And in fact, vocabulary.com, which is actually run by a guy I know, is way better in this regard. He's really trying to do that stuff. He's really trying to make it so that when you look at a word, it pulls you into all the web of relationships with other words. Like he, t- he really gets it. So I, when I look at that, I'm like, oh, I see they're starting to understand this. But for now, like the paper ones, you know, do that in a way that the digital ones don't. So digital is good for a, if, you're, if, you, if you're trying to just merely to understand a word so you can get through a problem and move to the end of the problem. But if you're, try, if, if you're trying to absorb language qua language, then yeah, you want the paper dictionary for now. So yeah, so that, that's a little example of these, of these decision points, you know, um, that, that I think confront us. And this is tiring, right? Like it's hard to make more decisions about how to live your intellectual life. Um, the, great, the great problem of, of the internet is that it gives us options, but options are wearying. You know, we know this. We know this from the, from the, from the psychological literature on, on you know, will, will depletion. So, um, so it, it, none of this, none of this is, 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 uh, is, is simple. Uh, all of it's hard, uh, um, but it has enormous benefits, basically. So we were talking about different forms of, um, of attention um, that, yeah, d- that digital right. mediates. And so I was talking about the quote that you had, and I, this is my penultimate question, but how do you think we can create a greater sense of awareness of knowing when it's not appropriate to use digital Given that the whole world is so digitized, how can we yeah. know when to use yeah. other forms of? I I I think I think the main thing, uh, one of the one of the main things is I guess to um, to sort of conduct experiments because here's the thing, it's different for everyone, right? Like no two people's minds work the same way. No two people communicate or learn things the same way. Um, so, so I always encourage people to try some, uh, you know, sort of try some sort of fairly lightweight experiments to see uh, what different, uh, I suppose, modes of unplugging or plugging feel like for you, right? I mean, one of the things I often say is, you know, so, you know, pick a time to, you know, be totally offline for a certain period, whether that's some, I mean, some people, it's kind of funny. I talked about how I go offline on the weekends, right? Um, I know people that are the exact opposite. They're like, they're like, no, actually, for me, the you know, you know, plugging in and being really, you know, active on social media and stuff is 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 my release, you know. And, and when I'm working, I want to have absolutely no contact. I want to have that sort of particular focus. Um, whereas for me, it's the opposite. Uh, when I'm at work, I actually find that. Conversations and are, are are a useful diversion um, and sometimes productive. Like I'll ask a question I don't know out loud and you know get in conversations. So th- the point being, like there are no rules. Uh, the only rules that you can figure out are the ones that work for you, um, and that requires experimentation. So so you know so. F- if you wanted to say, okay, I feel like I'm using social media a little too much, you know, uh, pick a particular times to try being, you know, actively away from it and see what ones work best. Um, you know, what, what that experience feels like. Um, you know, people often, one of the other thing is people often talk about, um, 
they feel like they're not reading enough. Um, you know, there's too many other things barking at their attention. Um, and, uh, and, and it's funny. I think, I think that, was, that was my experience too. There was this period like about six years ago and I said, I'm not reading enough books. Um, and I started saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to basically, you know, pick a bunch of books that I really, really want to get done by the end of this month, the end of this year and really dive into them and, and, you know, try and, you know, do that mindfulness thing of noticing when my brain is saying, Hey, you know, go look at something silly online and don't read this book. Um, and, and that, that slowly became, you know, sort of a habit to the point where I began to realize the types that there was a flavor to the type of thinking I was doing when I was reading that was usefully different from the flavor of the type of thinking I was doing. Um, when I was, uh, when I was, when I was online, um, there's, you know, like another experiment that worked for me is this funny thing called the Pomodoro technique. You've probably heard of that. Um, it's a little timer and you, you can download one, you know, there, there's various ones are for free or you can buy one if, if you find one you like that are for a couple dollars. And, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm discovering that I'm having trouble getting work done at my desk because, you know, there's this raging cocktail party called the internet, you know, uh, um, you know, that, that we're, we're just endlessly diverting people are saying funny things. Um, you know, I can't get work done. I basically say, okay, like let's do, let's do a 25 minute spurt here. And I use that. I, I set the time, the Pomodoro timer, um, for a certain amount of time. And you have these little breaks in between and, you know, and 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 that that has worked well for me, um, but the reason why I tell people to do experiments is because I know other people who the Pomodoro thing doesn't work at all. Uh, I know some of them who swear by you know using like a, a, a piece of software that takes them entirely offline um, a freedom. Uh, that doesn't work for me at all. I, I like. For me, my thinking is my research is often um, dependent on the act on the the, the internet. I'm in the, I'm a nonfiction writer. I'll be in the middle of a paragraph. I, I I run into I run not into writer's block but reporter's block. I'm trying to write something and I don't. I realize I don't have the fact at hand, so I need to do online research to get it. So being offline doesn't help my writing; it hinders it. Um, but freedom works really well if you're right, if you're trying to write something that doesn't need you to be online. Another, I mean, another funny thing I stumbled into once was that I started. I would go to cafes to work, and I. I, I, the cafe didn't have a, a plug, so I just had my battery. And it's kind of an older laptop. It only lasts about two or three hours. So I, disc- I first I was sort of dorking around a little bit online. Um, but then I realized, oh, my God, I've only got 60% of my battery left. I better, I better start working. And so it, the, the fact that the, that the battery was going to die on me <laughs> created a sense of urgency and a deadline to actually get stuff done. And so I've started, I started I, – I, I, I lucked into that, but I now, and now it's a technique I will actively leave my charger at home and go to a cafe knowing that I've only got three hours of laptop time so I can't waste it dorking around looking at uh, you know the 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 40,000 word entry for Daleks uh, in, in, in Wikipedia, right? Um, uh, and so, so I found it, but it's been this constellation of experiments that worked for me. And, um, and, uh, and, I think, and I think the same thing is what everyone needs to do to find their own um, particular you know, set of pathways. Clive, it's an absolute, been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work? They can... Um, they can go to my website, smarterthanyouthink.net, uh, my blog, collisiondetection.net, uh, or I am pretty active on Twitter uh, during the weekdays, certainly, sometimes a little bit on the weekends, and that is Pomeranian99. And you can, of course, order my book. 
you can that's available at uh, um, at any of the online sellers and at an awful lot of the uh, the major paper chains too. Fantastic, Clive Thompson. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really, really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Clive Thompson. The ideas of ambient awareness and how the constant now of the digital age makes us more distracted really gave me a different perspective on where we put our minds whilst we're online. Thank you all very much for joining us. We're really grateful for you downloading and really look forward to being with you again next week. 